1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Peter writes, Servants, or slaves, it could be translated, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten, you endure? But if when, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you've set before us today some holy and awesome truth in this passage of Scripture. Open it up for us, we pray, so that we can understand it, so we can know better what the Lord Jesus has done in our behalf and how he would have us follow his example of enduring unjust suffering. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ is our great model and example of how we should live the Christian life. Sound theology leads to fruitful Christian life. To know Jesus better is to know better the kind of people that we should be. We see this principle in Scripture. For example, in Philippians chapter 2, you may remember how Paul was exhorting the believers at Philippi to be humble to one another. He says in Philippians 2.4, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So what was the teaching strategy that Paul was using? He pointed them to the example of the Lord Jesus, who though he lived in the beauty and glory of heaven, with the Father and with the Spirit, he left that and came down to earth and took upon himself a human body, and he died on a cross. Since the Son of God did that for us, we too need to follow his example and give up our own selfish rights and humbly and lovingly serve one another. Well, you may remember from last week's uh, preaching, if you were here, that Peter was teaching us that we need to be, as Christians, submissive to governmental authorities, to 
uh, mayors and governors and people like that because God ordains these positions in society for the good and the order of society. So by becoming good citizens, we become examples to our society of people who have good behavior, not bad behavior. And so we glorify God and uh, the integrity of our conduct will serve to silence those who would falsely say bad things about Christians. Well, the theme of submission continues here in this passage. But it's a submission that is grounded in the sovereignty and rulership of God over all human affairs and relationships. Whatever position we are in in society, it's by the ordination of God. Even as mayors and police chiefs and teachers and uh, so forth are in their positions by the sovereign direction of God, so each of us is in our position and place and time according to the sovereign direction of God. Well, today's passage deals with a particular group of people in Roman society, slaves and masters. Well, this was a, a bigger issue, much bigger at that time than it is today in 21st century America. Back then, in that culture, slavery was a common part of society. Foreign nations were conquered by the Roman armies and sometimes they took captives and these people would become slaves and human beings were bought and sold and taken into people's homes and businesses and put to work. Now sometimes these slaves were well-educated people and held responsible positions in the owner's estate. Well, so Peter, in, in bringing up this subject of servants being subject to your masters, was addressing a very common institution in that day, that of slavery. It was woven into the very fabric of Roman society. When a person became a Christian who was a slave, their spiritual status before God changes, but their status in society probably wouldn't change. They would still be a slave. But they would be a slave with a new heart, a new power within, a new motivation, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Well, the question is, now that a person who was or is a slave has become a Christian, how should they act and behave toward their masters? Should their behavior be any different? Should it change? Should their attitude be different? Should they be less argumentative, more trustworthy, more hardworking? Well, the answer to all these questions is yes, they should. They should, upon becoming a Christian, become more submissive and compliant with the directions and orders of their master. Uh, they should have become more trustworthy perhaps stopped pilfering or stealing things from their master, which sometimes happen, and they would need to put aside laziness and slackness in their work 
and become more diligent and hardworking. Well, most likely when a person became a Christian, their master had not become a Christian. And some of these masters were reasonable people, kind, and others were not. They were harsh, they were cruel, they were abusive. Sometimes a cruel master would unjustly punish one of his servants. Well, how should a Christian in this situation respond? Should they kick and rebel or submit to the punishment, even though they don't deserve it? Well, this situation uh, leads to what I'm indicating, the first principle in this passage, and that is the Christian calling to bear unjust suffering when it comes upon us. Interesting, this whole issue of relationship of slaves to masters is, is spoken about several times in the New Testament. For example, Paul wrote about this in Ephesians 6, and he says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. So this is a huge issue in, in society at that time. And Paul said similar things in the book of Colossians and 1 Timothy. But here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.18. Servants or slaves, be subject, that is, submit to your masters with all respect, literally with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, the word translated in the ESV, uh, respect, is actually literally fear. So it's probably a reference primarily to the fear of God. Secondarily, to the fear or respect for the master. Well, he says, when you do this, when you submit, not only to the good masters, but to the unjust masters, especially when you do that, this is a gracious thing, the text says. Gracious here means it takes the grace of God to do this. To maintain an even keel, a kind and patient spirit when you're being unjustly punished. But at the same time, it reveals the active grace of God in a, a Christian slave's life. He says, for this is a gracious thing, verse 19, when mindful of God, one endures suffering. So here's the whole key, mindful of God, literally conscious of God. Mr. Stibbs, one of the commentators on this book, says this, the whole phrase, mindful of God, means that we are prompted by a conscious awareness of God's presence and God's will, and such a person knows 
that God sees everything and knows what God expects. And so the concern of such a slave, a Christian slave, is to please God. Well, the text says, one endures suffer, uh, sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now, Peter describes this situation. He says, what credit is it, verse 20, if when you sin, as you disobey your master, okay, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. Now, sometimes they were beaten with whips or with fists. What credit is it if, if you're guilty and you get beaten for it? But if when you do good and suffer, when you endure, that's a gracious thing in the eyes and the sight of God. So what Peter is saying here, he's saying to the Christian slave, if you do wrong to your master, you disobey him and he punishes you, even if he beats you or whips you, you manage to endure it well, there's nothing to brag about there. You got what you deserved. But on the other hand, if you do good, you're doing the best you can, and you get accused of wrongdoing, and you're punished. You're punished undeservedly. Maybe your master accused you of stealing, and you didn't steal anything. Some other person did. But you get punished. You get beaten. You get whipped. And if you submit to that, Verse 20 says, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. God sees this, and it pleases him. God sees the heart of the slave. Well, it is, after all, the sight of God. In the sight of God, this is what should concern us most, not the sight of people. God sees all. He knows all. He knows our thoughts before we think them. So our actions should be conducted with a view that he sees all of them. And our desire should be to please him. Now, verse 21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example. To this you've been called. To what? Well, to wherever you are in life. Whatever circumstances you're in. God has called you into those circumstances. If we happen to be a slave, back then or even today in some parts of the world, we must begin to act as Christian slaves, serving our master from the heart. Why do we do this? Well, he says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Well, Christ suffered for us, and we need to follow his example. So what are some ways we might have to suffer here in our situation? Well, let me give you a few examples. Suppose an employee is working in an office and he's pressured by his boss to falsify the records in the company, to cover up something. And he refuses to do it. 
And so he gets fired. So he's treated unjustly. Or suppose a student in school is pressured by those around him to, to look at the cheat sheet that's going around. He refuses to do it. And so they shun him. They make fun of him because he won't join <coughs> in their cheating. Or maybe we have a subcontractor who's building a building and he's pressured by the cons- construction company to use inferior quality materials to save money and he refuses to do it because they know the house will be weak and so he loses his job or maybe a worker is invited by his fellow workers to to go to a party after work where there's a lot of drinking and other things going on and he declines because he knows some ungodly behavior going on, and thus he's made fun of the next day by his co-workers. Well, or we might have an example of a Christian who's in prison. <coughs> Many Christians are in prison because of their faith in Christ. They're suffering. You might have a Christian, for example, who sings hymns, and he's told by the guards to shut up. He refuses to shut up. And so they carry him off to solitary confinement in a deep, dark, terrible place because he refuses to cease worshiping God. Well, these are some just examples I thought of, uh, many others we could think of, where we can suffer unjustly for seeking to be faithful to Christ. Well, what is our calling? Our calling in life is to bear with unjust suffering if it happens to come our way. Now, all this is based on the second principle here, that Christ is our example of a gracious sufferer. Now, Jesus taught his disciples three things about suffering. Number one, Christ had to suffer because he was the Messiah. It was prophesied that he would suffer. So Jesus had to suffer. Even in 1 Peter 1, 11, it says, When he, that is the Spirit of Christ, in the lives of the prophet, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Well, secondly... Christ's sufferings were a ransom providing for the forgiveness of the sins of his people, his sufferings on the cross. And the third principle here is that all who follow Christ must be prepared to suffer. Now, Peter didn't understand this at first, but he began to learn it. He began to teach it. And he began to prepare those under his care for this. Maybe you or I didn't realize it either. But often we have to suffer in this life because we're Christians. The world does not like Christians. Because we don't join with them in their sinful behavior. The people of the world may hate us when we speak the gospel to them. They hate the gospel. They hate us because it, the message exposes their sin and calls them to repent. 
And they're quite happy in their sins. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote these words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we can pretty much expect it. <laughs> Sooner or later, some kind of persecution is allowed to come our way. Now, Peter writes at the end of verse 21, so that you might follow in his steps. Christ suffered, we follow in his steps to endure unjust suffering. Follow here means to follow closely behind Jesus. It's like people in a parade, marching in a parade, a band in a parade. There's the leader out front. When he takes five steps forward, the people in the band step five steps forward. When he stops, they stop. When he takes ten steps slowly, they go ten steps slowly. They're following right behind him. That's the idea here. That you might follow in Christ's steps. Keep up with Christ, how he might lead you in your daily life. Well, we come to the next section, verses 22 through 25. It's very interesting here. We see that there are no less than five quotations or echoes of Isaiah 53. Now, Peter knew his Bible. He knew the Old Testament. And he knew Isaiah 53 backwards and forwards. So let's look at these five references to Isaiah 53 in this passage. First example, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Well, if we look at Isaiah 53, 9, it says this. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, Peter had walked with Jesus for three years. He'd observed Jesus. He'd listened to Jesus. He'd talked to Jesus. And he testified that he never saw Jesus commit a sin. He never heard Jesus enter uh, uh, speak a deceitful word. Now, if you were to hang out with me, one of our other brothers and sisters here, probably within less than an hour you'd hear us say something that was sin or close to sin, maybe even deceit in our lives, but not Jesus. You would never hear him speak an untruth or something deceitful or hurtful. It only was good for edification. Now here's the great thing. Because Jesus had no sins. He is qualified to bear our sins. He has no sins to pay for. He's got like an open slate, open book. And so we put our sins there. And he pays for them. He had no sins of his own. So we can pray to, to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus... You had no sin, and therefore you can carry my sins. Lord Jesus, you had no sin, and therefore 
You have room to carry my sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. You can't beat that for a good deal. Second example of a quote from Isaiah 53 is what we see in verse 23. When he was reviled, it was spoken evil against. When he was abused, uh, abused by speech, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And so Isaiah 53, 7 says this, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, think about this. Isaiah, I mean, uh, Matthew 26, verse 27. Jesus is on trial. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. I'm quoting here. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. Here's Jesus standing before a whole battalion of Roman soldiers. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took a reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away. He uttered not a word. He did not threaten. He just took it in silent suffering. Now, contrast this with Paul's reaction. Acts 23. He was before the high priest being interviewed. Be a judge, and the high priest, verse 2, Acts 23, Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him in the mouth. Then Paul looked at them and said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? He's talking to the high priest. So he, he fought back, right? But Jesus didn't. I mean, he was right. He was just in confronting the evil that was happening to him. But Jesus didn't even do that. In chapter 3 of 1 Peter, Peter says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. Hebrews 12.3 Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. Now, as Jesus was expiring on the cross, he called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This was the prayer of his whole life. He was always committed into the Father's hands. No matter how he was abused or persecuted by people. Verse 23 in 1 Peter 2 says, He did not threaten, 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He continued entrusting himself. He continued committing himself. He, com he continued delivering himself to him who judges justly. He was being judged unjustly, but he knew there was a just judge who was observing and who would vindicate him in the end. I want to quote you from Dr. Uh, Mr. Stibbs again. He said this, that we see here, Christ willing, uncomplaining submission to unjust suffering. His whole trial and crucifixion was unjust. He acknowledged, Jesus acknowledged above his earthly circumstances and oppressors the sovereignty and righteous judgment of God and he committed himself and his cause into God's hands. By doing so, he provided in principle and in spirit an example to be followed by all who in following him find that they too have to suffer unjustly and commit their souls in well-doing to a faithful creator. You might need to lower the air a little bit for us, please. Thank you. So, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We've seen here that our Christian calling is to bear unjust suffering when it comes our way, and that Christ is our example of a gracious sufferer. In fact, Christ is the bearer of our sins. He paid the penalty of our sins. He broke the power that sin had over us. He set in motion righteous living within us. His suffering brought us healing. Now, there's a third example of a quote from Isaiah 53. It says in Isaiah 53:11, "Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." In verse 12 of Isaiah 53, "Yet he bore the sin of many." So, this prophecy in Isaiah 53 is to help us understand clearly what Christ did in bearing our sins. He paid the price that we owed to God for our sins. Now, Jewish people today, if you bring up this passage before them, and I did this one time at a Starbucks talking to a Jewish man. Ty, you remember that? I do. Yeah. And I, I pointed him to uh, Isaiah 53, and he didn't know what to do with it. So he got his iPad out, and he began to find how they were supposed to answer that question if it was brought up to him. And sure enough, he gave the standard answer that this refers not to the Messiah, not to a person, but to the Jewish people, to the, the uh, country of Israel. So they get around this. But it's very clear. This is a person who is suffering for the sins of his people. 
The New Testament declares over and over again that Christ's death was the purchase price, the payment for the sins of God's people. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Paul in Romans says, He who was delivered up, he was delivered up for our trespasses, he was raised for our justification. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off, he's speaking to Gentiles in particular like you and me, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus bore our sins. He carried our sins that we might die to sins. It says in verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. What's the result? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus was our substitute. And so, by his death, our connection with sin, our old life of sin, has been severed. We're free from the bondage of the old sinful nature. Though it does harass us from time to time, its power has been broken. We are free to live a righteous life before God. Paul says in Romans 6, You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus. This is a spiritual reality that we need to capitalize on. When sin tries to raise its head up when we're tempted, say, No, I died to you. Christ died to set me free. And I'm living for righteousness now. Well, Two great complementary truths here. Christ bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Paul says again, don't present your members, your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members, the members of your body, to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, a fourth example of a quote from Isaiah 53 says, By, by his wounds you have been healed. The end of verse 24. So, this is speaking of spiritual healing. It might indicate physical healing also. 
You see, Isaiah 53 says, He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the chastisement that brought us peace was upon Him, and with His wounds we are healed. The suffering body of Christ resulted in healing for our souls, spirits, and for our bodies too, for sure at the resurrection. Now, a fifth example. Verse 25 says, For you were straying like sheep. Again, Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's a bunch of sheep straying off, falling into canyons, getting eaten by wolves. And here's Jesus over here dying for them to bring them back, to rescue them. The Old Testament gives some graphic descriptions of the wandering people of God. Jeremiah 50, verse 6, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. They have forgotten their fold. Ezekiel 34 They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to to search or seek for them. That was true until something happened. The great shepherd came from heaven to live among men. Jesus describes the ministry of a faithful shepherd in Matthew 18. He says, If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, I truly say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. Jesus came to earth to seek and to find the lost sheep like you and me. Verse 25, Peter says, You are straying like sheep. Sheep are dumb animals. They will just wander off and fall in holes and be stuck unless a shepherd rescues them. They have to be led. You were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter writes, The wandering sheep are enabled by the Holy Spirit to hear and recognize the shepherd's voice and follow him. Just like they say a shepherd can call his sheep out when two flocks get mixed together and that his sheep will come out and follow him because they know his voice. And so the Holy Spirit enables us to hear the voice of Christ when he calls us from our sins to himself to be his disciples. There's a great promise of Isaiah 40, verse 11. It says, When Messiah comes, he'll tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Yes, this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for his lambs. The great promise is made also in Ezekiel 34 that Yahweh says, I'll set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. The descendant of David would come and shepherd the people of God. They shall have one shepherd. 
Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the one prophesied in the Old Testament. I have arrived among you. My sheep hear me, and they know my voice, and they follow me. Well, today, we have seen in this passage the Christian calling to bear unjust suffering when it comes our way. We see that Christ is our example of the gracious sufferer. And we see that Christ suffered as the bearer of our sins. His suffering brought us healing, paid the penalty of our sins, broke sin's power over our lives, and set us in motion for righteous living. And so he'll be with us all the days of our lives doing these great things in our lives by the power of his spirit. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you, each of you, with everything good that you may do his will, working in us and all of us, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you were our suffering sin bearer, that you bore unjust suffering in our behalf, even the humiliation and shame of the cross, in order to save us and rescue us from our sins. Help us, O Lord, to follow in your steps, bearing with any unjust suffering that may come our way. We give you all the praise for your sacrificial love for us. Help us by your grace to live all out committed lives for you and your kingdom. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.